All right. Well, hey, if you are new to Sedaris, welcome. Uh, we're so glad you're joining us in the new year. Um, and I, I, that was a nice, perfectly long introduction, so I have a little less time than normal. And everyone knows I don't struggle with that, so um, we're just going to get straight into it. Um, But welcome if you're new, and we've been walking through all of 2023 in the book of John, and we got through uh, almost 12 chapters. We're going to finish out the the end of chapter 12, and this is a transition moment in the book of John. Now, if you don't know what the book of John is, it's one of four uh, biographies of Jesus' life, but it's more than a biography. It's a theological biography, and so John was one of Jesus' Uh, disciples, one of his close friends, and, and after Jesus' life and teaching um, and death and then resurrection and ascension, John uh, helped start the early Jesus movement, um, and, and he, for years and years, ministered to people, told people about Jesus. Then near the end of his life, he thought it a good idea to write down everything uh, that he had seen and heard and uh, witnessed and do it from his own perspective because he'd watched for decades now as the church began how people were maybe getting confused about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so he writes sort of the final, uh, the last of the four um, biographies, we call them Gospels of Jesus and uh, gives us kind of what he thinks we need to know before he himself dies. And so that's what we've been studying and, and super excited to jump back into that. I think... I think um, We'll get to the second half of the book of John in 2024, and I feel pretty good saying we'll finish uh, in 2024, but, you know, we can always call an audible. So, uh, new year, and, and, and yet same old John, and that's beautiful, particularly if you're newer to the investigation of who Jesus was, because John is like Jesus direct. He's going to tell you exactly who he was and what he did, and then John's going to give his own commentary to help you understand why that's so important. And so we're going to look at this transition uh, passage today where we kind of move from what was Jesus' public ministry, um, what he was doing among the people, and, and now he's, the second half of the book, he's, he's going to now focus in to the private conversations that he had with his closest friends and, and students, um, we call them the disciples, uh, right before Jesus is going to be arrested and then uh, convicted and executed on a Roman cross. Um, and that's going to be because he's claiming to be God, and they're going to kill him for that. So, are you excited? Are you excited? I am excited. Now, to catch you up to speed, because I know a lot of people are new in the new year, so you're not alone, um, I want to catch you up to speed of what those first 11 chapters have been all about. So John's purpose in writing uh, this book was to uh, help evangelize um, and share the good news with people that, that didn't quite know it or understand it. And in particular, scholars think he was, he was most likely really curious about uh, helping the Jewish people that had, uh, not, not particularly in Palestine or Jerusalem, but those who had scattered around the Mediterranean world. So John is primarily writing to those Jewish People and helping them come to the conclusion about who Jesus was. Now, he probably already knew that these other gospels were circulating, and so he is going to, as I said, give his own uh, unique stories and focus on things that the other three gospels don't focus on, but in particular to help those who are trying to ask the question, not necessarily who is Jesus, because they had lots of information already about that, but asking the question, who is the Messiah? 
And that would have been very important for these Jewish people around the world. Who is the Christ? And Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. And so the Hebrew people have been waiting for the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One to come and restore all things. So it's, John's not necessarily helping you answer who is Jesus, because a lot of the people would have already known that, but, but who is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the Anointed One, the Son of God? That's the question John's trying to help his readers answer. Okay? Now, we know this in part because John tells us this at the end of his gospel. So uh, let me read to you two passages that kind of tell us this is what John is all about. So why does he give us all the detail? Why does he tell us about the miracles and the signs and, and all, the, all the things? John 20, 30 to 31, I think we'll throw it on the screen here, says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So John's telling us he didn't write down everything he saw or everything that Jesus did, but certain things for certain reasons he's writing them down. And then he said this, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole reason John wrote this at great, uh, with great care and, and great precision and great literary genius was so that you might have the information you need so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah and also God the Son in the flesh and that by believing, not just to believe that, but so that if you believe that, you might have a chance to find life in his name. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Um, and then John goes on to say in John 21, 25, he says this, And there are also so many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. So, you know, John's definitely on Team Jesus, okay? So he's going to help you understand why he's so convinced, why he'll give his life why he would do anything to help other people come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's John's purpose. And he'll pick his stories to prove to you that Jesus is, in fact, the one and only Christ, the Messiah. Okay. So, as he's doing this, of course, John is helped along by the Holy Spirit. So he is, these are John's words, but they're God's words, too. The Scriptures are 100% human and 100% divine. God is directing the process, helping John recall and recount all that he's seen and experienced and, and understand the significance of it so that when he writes his gospel, he's writing something that's even valuable for us today. That we too, just like the original readers, can read what John has written and come to see that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi, that Jesus is no ordinary Palestinian Jew 2,000 years ago. He's no ordinary carpenter, that he is in fact the Messiah. So that's what we get to do too. That's why we're studying this book. And so one of the terms that John, we've talked about this, that he uses to describe Jesus is son of man. So Jesus called himself the son of man, and, um, he, and John will also call Jesus the word, or the, that's the, the Greek word logos, of God. So God himself, John will say, becomes a man. The word becomes flesh, John says in chapter 1. 
And uh, also in chapter one, I'll read this for you, verse 51, Jesus said this, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying, if you hang out with me, you'll see things that you'd never seen before, and you'll be sure that I am unique amongst all that have ever lived. And then again, in chapter 3, verse 11 to 13, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So these are things Jesus has said, and so he's clearly identifying himself as the God-man, he who came from heaven and therefore knows things about God's plans, God's way, God's truth in a way that no other person could because he is the Son of Man, the unique person of God in the flesh, okay? So then, this is all background to catch us up to speed. And so then Jesus, throughout his ministry and teaching, will continually refer to himself in a way that no Jewish person should refer to themselves. He'll say, I am this or that or the other thing. He does that many times. He says, I am, and we'll look at these in just a sec. And when he says, I am, he is actually reminding everyone of who he's saying he is. Because when Moses, in the Old Testament, encountered God in the burning bush, you may have heard this story, when he encountered God in the burning bush, Moses asked God, when the people ask me who has sent me, because Moses was sent by God to help rescue the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God tells him, tell them, I am that I am has sent you. I am that I am has sent you. And so, The phrase I am is clearly, to Jewish people, a reference to be God. And so Jesus, again and again, will say, I am this and I am that, and he is saying, I am God. So seven times in the Gospel of John, we've seen this, or we will see it. Five of them we've seen already, we'll see two more in 2024. But let me just read these to you. So these are the seven I am statements that that John draws forward to our attention because he wants us to see that Jesus is claiming to be equivalent with God. The first, he says, I am the bread of life. This is in John chapter 6. And in this chapter of John, if you remember, Jesus establishes this pattern of saying, I am. And he'll make a statement about who he is, and then, and then he doesn't just say it, he'll back it up <laughs> with proof that he is, in fact, what he says he is. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and the proof of that is that Jesus will take a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread and miraculously feed 5,000 plus people out of just a couple of loaves. That he is actually, like the creator of the universe, able to create out of nothing. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Do you remember this? For those of you who are with us, I am the bread of life. Then he goes on to say, I am the light of the world. So we've talked about this a lot. We talked a lot about this at Christmas. This is why we put lights up on everything, if you didn't know, because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so John chapter 8 is where we first see Jesus claiming this I am statement. And he does this right before he heals a man who has only ever seen darkness in his eyes because the man is blind. And Jesus heals the man's blindness, and for the first time, the man sees light. So Jesus, again, says, I am the light of the world, and then he proves that he is, in fact, able to back up what he says 
by healing this man. The third thing that Jesus says, he says, I am the door. Okay, so if you remember this, this was in John 10. Jesus says, I am the door, and nobody enters the kingdom of heaven by any other means except through me. That's a big statement. But he says, I am the door. And, and he talks about this in, with the imagery of sheep and entering a sheepfold. And he says, no one gets into the sheepfold unless they enter through me, the door. And he's pointing um, his, his people to the fact that he is uh, the good shepherd, but also the door to get into the sheepfold of God. He says, if anyone climbs in another way, that man is either a thief or a robber. But if you come in through me, you come in and become part of the family of God. He says, I am the door. Then he went in John 10 and said, also said, I am the good shepherd. We sang that today, right? I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, God identified himself as the shepherd over the people of Israel. And Jesus comes in and says, I am that exact same shepherd, just in the flesh. And so he'll say, follow me. Jesus, as the good shepherd, is the one willing to protect his flock even to the point of death, and he proved that on the cross, that he would do anything to protect and save his sheep because he is the good shepherd. And the fifth thing that we've studied so far is he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He's like, oh, great, easy thing for you to say, and then he proves it. His friend Lazarus dies of an illness four days later after he'd already been buried, Jesus goes to his tomb. He says, roll away the stone. You remember we studied this? And and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out with all of the linens of of, of the burial cloths on him. And he raises his friend Lazarus to life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not even death can hold me back. I'm not like anyone else you've ever met. So these are the five that we've seen, and then in chapter 14, we'll see Jesus say the famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am that, Jesus will say, and then in chapter 15, Jesus will say, I am the true vine, and he'll say, anyone attached to me will experience life and fruit and growth and bounty and joy, but if you're not, you'll experience something very different. So big statements that Jesus is making, but he backs them up with his actions, And that's why he came, to show that God is near to us, he's not far from us, and that his promises are true. And so Jesus gives us little glimpses into these promises. And so just as way of background, again, I just want to bring you up. These are the miracles that John has decided to uh, highlight for us in these first 11 chapters. And John, the miracles, supernatural things that cannot be done by sleight of hand or trick, it's clearly a supernatural event that Jesus performs, and John chooses just seven of them, I think on purpose, seven is the perfect number, but he picks seven to highlight, and he calls them signs. So he's saying, this isn't just about doing nice things for people, this is about Jesus giving you a sign that he is in fact God in the flesh. So these signs actually, some scholars think, actually correspond to the seven days of creation in Genesis, as Jesus, John is saying, Jesus is that same, the same God that made the universe and human beings and the animals and all the things, that's the same God who here is performing new miracles 
in the person of Jesus. So the seven were he turns water into wine in John chapter 2 because Jesus likes to party. Uh, then in <laughs> the second miracle is cleansing the temple because Jesus actually is really annoyed by, by hyper-religious people who think that they can work their way to perfection, that they can somehow impress God. He's very annoyed by that. So if you're here and you're like, it's hard for me to walk in a church because there's very annoying religious people. Jesus is your guy. Like, he goes and he flips over tables and he, and he doesn't like that people are making money off of the name of God. And so uh, that's his, his second sign that he does. And then he heals a noble man's son who is his sick and he heals him. The fourth miracle is he heals a lame man that hasn't been able to walk um, for decades. And then he feeds the multitude that we talked about with the bread. He heals the blind man, which we talked about. And then, as we already talked about, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus, John purposely chooses. He says, there's plenty of stories I can tell you about things Jesus didn't say. These are the ones I'm going to highlight for certain reasons. We've talked about that all. Are we up to speed? <laughs> okay. Now, if you could all promise me that you'd never miss a week, then I would never have to do recaps. Okay, we need a unanimous vote here. Okay, so this brings us all to John chapter 12, verse 37 to 50. John chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, you could turn there. We're going to throw it on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, um, if you don't own a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Grab it. It looks like this. You can actually take that home. That's a New Year's gift to you. Uh, and then you can read along with us. And, and we said this last year when we started, John. It's great to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke in conjunction with reading John because John's going to tell you some stories, and Luke's going to tell you some, and Matthew, and, and, and Mark. And, and so you're getting to know Jesus. So you can read along, take this home with you. But if you do grab one of these Bibles, we're going to be on page 955, okay? So the strange thing, I mean, think about everything I just told you. All the ways in which Jesus said, I'm good for the world. This, I bring healing and sight and, and, and food for the starving. I, I bring good things, and I'm proving that I am who I say I am and through all these things. And so the strange thing about what we're going to read here is that after all of this, John's going to tell us, and most people didn't believe. You're going to say, what? So look at that with me. John chapter 12, verse 37. John, actually it's next page, I told you, so 956. Um, John says this. Even though he, that's Jesus, had performed so many signs in their presence. So not just people heard about it, but in their presence. They watched him turn water into wine. They watched him create bread out of nothing. They watched him raise Lazarus. They, they met Lazarus after he had died and come back to life. They'd done so many signs. He'd done so many signs in their presence, yet they did not believe in him. How could this be? How could this be? And so, think of the original hearers of John's gospel. They're thinking the same thing. Now, they are already in the community of faith, or at least hanging out with the community of faith. And so they're probably thinking, how, how, if all this stuff happened, how, how, how is it that not everybody believed? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, Jesus is so good, why doesn't everyone believe? Like, what, what are the things Jesus says he's bringing that people don't like? It is a funny question, isn't it? Like, okay, what, 
the love part? Is that the thing we don't like? Or the forgiveness of sin? Is that the thing we don't like? Or like, what is the thing that people don't want? Is it the healing stuff? The, you know, like, what is it, right? So we might have the same question. John's readers might have had the same question. And so, and so, John is going to give them some Old Testament Hebrew verses that he thinks will help explain to them why people still don't believe. So let's read it together. So I'll just start at 37 again and we'll read the whole thing. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This, John says, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, and then he's going to quote the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is just a euphemism for God's saving arm. So you think it's, you know, somebody's drowning, the arm of the Lord, they're saving. Like, so who has believed our message, Isaiah said, and to whom has the, Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then John says, this is why they were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn, and I would not heal them. So in Isaiah, he's quoting God, explaining why people are are so stubborn. And John's saying, you see, this was predicted that even when the message of the Lord came, In the flesh, in the person of Jesus, the Logos, the Word became flesh. Even if God walked among us, people's hearts would still be hardened, and they wouldn't see. This was predicted by the prophets. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And then John says this, nevertheless, this is so interesting, he said, many did believe in him when Jesus came. Even among the rulers, there were some that believed. So even the elites, that, as we've been talking about, they're the most stubborn, the elites, because they're losing power, right? Even some of those rulers and elite types in Jerusalem, even they believed. But because of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the most strict, hyper-religious group that had a lot of the sort of religious power in the day, even the, uh, they, they, they believed, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Jesus or belief in Jesus. Why? So that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. So this is how Jesus' public ministry ends. With most people not believing, and even the ones that do believe keep their mouths shut, they don't confess with their lips that Jesus is in fact who he said he was, even if they believed in their hearts, because they fear the repercussions socially and religiously. I want to be kicked out of the synagogue. I want to be kicked out of church just because I believe Jesus is this. Okay. So this is fascinating. This is a, this is an, a really interesting turn of events. Like if you saw all these signs, you saw all these amazing promises that Jesus was making, he's backing it up, he's proving it by doing things, and yet so many don't believe. So, I know you've been excited since you saw the glass whiteboard come out, because that means Dave's going to try to draw something. Okay, so I'm going to try to draw something for you. Grace, grace. Okay, here we go. I'm going to try to explain 
the way. Okay, here it is. Okay, here we go. So, okay, clearly you know what this is, right? This is John 1 to 12. Well, I'll say 12a, okay? <laughs> now, John 1 to 12a, that's what we've been talking about. All the things that Jesus did and claimed to be and was, and it's a wide path, right? Jesus has been walking this path with those who believe in him and those who don't believe with him. This is why we call it his public ministry. John's just recounted everything that was public to everyone. And I told you what we're going into, chapter 13, is now he's going to hyper-focus on these private conversations that Jesus had pretty much just with the 12 disciples and, and other super close. So, that, so the conversation is going to get narrower, okay? It's, it's been wide. There's been people walking with him all across the spectrum. And John's going to say, there always comes a point in the journey where decisions have to be made. It's been easy to go and hang out with Jesus until now. Ah, oh, this is great. Everyone's eating, everyone's having fun, everyone's seeing miracles. But there always comes a point when the path narrows. Okay? The path will narrow. That's the text we're going to look at today. Okay? This is the, John is focusing right here on this moment. Now, two things happen in this moment. One is the path sort of diverts down here, okay? And this is, the wide path is going to continue. But there is going to be a new path that continues up this way, okay? One is going to be a very narrow path, and one is going to remain wide, and, even, and you could say even widening. John's saying, this moment always comes in history, this always comes in families, and this always comes in each and every human heart. It's been easy to walk along and learn and have fun, but at some point, there's a fork in the road. At some point, things change, okay? And John's going to say, and this was the moment. Strangely enough, after his greatest miracle, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Things get actually way worse for Jesus, way harder for Jesus. The path narrows. It becomes much harder to be one of his disciples and to learn from him. And that's why he sort of has to go into, you know, more private discourse, not so public. We've come to the fork in the road. And this text reminds us. And so, John has been preparing us for this, this need to choose, right? There comes a moment where you need to choose. Which way will you go? And Jesus, if you were with us at Christmas, says, I'm about to be lifted up. I'm about to be crucified. I'm about to die. So he predicts even his own method of death. He knows he's going to die on a cross, and a lot of people will walk away from him, and a few will continue with him. So turn back with me one page, and, and Jesus has been saying a lot of, he's been using a lot of this path and walking analogy. You may not have heard it yet. And when we get to I am the way, the truth, and the life, it'll make more sense having this picture in your brain. Because Jesus is talking about, sometimes it's hard to know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it literally, the only thing it means is that you choose to walk with Jesus, even when the path gets narrow and tough and difficult. 
You choose him. You choose to stay close to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Nothing else. Okay, so he's been saying that. Look at John 12, 25 to 26. He said this. John 12, 25 to 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Okay, so what does it mean to serve Jesus? It means to follow Jesus. There's no sort of serving him from afar, he's saying. You want to serve me? You think I'm king? You want to serve the king? You've got to follow me. You've got to be close to me. Where I am, there my servants also will be. Okay? Where I am, there my servants also will be. Okay, so there is no notion in, in Jesus' mind that there's, there's just sort of affirming a few sort of um, intellectual ideas about him to follow him. To follow him means to, to be near him and serve as his servants because he's the king. He says something, again, similar, thinking about this walking analogy. Look at verse, chapter 12, verse 35 and 36. Jesus says this, The light will be with you only a little bit longer, so walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. Where are you going? The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where they're going. Have you ever felt like I've felt like that times I don't know where I'm going. This is a common where where am I going? New year starts, I'm supposed to have these resolutions or goals. I don't even know what goals to make. I don't know where I'm going. Jesus would tell you, you don't need to know. Just stay close to me, and we'll go somewhere very special. And when I've done that in my life, I can tell you, he's taken me some places I never thought I'd be, some places I never actually would have chosen had I known, but it's always some place that when I look back, I'm said, I'm so glad I stayed close to him. And in some sense, I'm kind of glad he didn't tell me, because I might have I bailed. So stay close to the light, walk near the light, because most of you don't know where you're going. That's what Jesus would say. But I know where I'm going, and I want life for you. I want a kind of life for you that you couldn't even want for yourself if I told you about it. So stay close to me. That's what it means to choose Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. Let me, let me read one more for you. We're going to go back one page to chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says it this way. He says, as for me, if I am lifted up, and again, he's talking about both the cross and he's predicting resurrection and ascension. If I am lifted up from the world or from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So he said, if you're paying attention to me, if you're thinking about me, if you're considering me, if you're trying to stay close to me, also know that I am going to draw you and woo you to myself. It's just what I care about. I want, to be, I want you to be near to me as much as you want to be near to me. I actually want it more than you do. I will draw you to myself if you're willing to come. Because there's coming a moment where it's not so easy to follow me and, and a choice must be made. Okay? And so, 98 times in the book of John, he uses the word pisteo, which is the Greek word for believe. Okay? To believe. And so, so what does it mean to believe? Again, it's not some sort of assent to these propositions about Jesus. To believe means to trust. Okay, so you say, how do I know if I'm trusting Jesus? 
Well, the way you know if you're trusting Jesus is if wherever you're on on the path, you realize you're close to him, that means you're trusting him. That means you're believing in him. If again and again you find yourself far from him, it probably means you're not actually believing, no matter what you'd say or what you'd check on a box about what you believe. The question is, are you near to him? Because if you're near to him, it means that you've trusted him. If you're, where, if you, if you're hanging out where people talk about him, where we study books about him, where we sing songs to him, there's a good chance you're trusting him. Even if inside you feel like you have a lot of doubts or questions or concerns, right? And that's all of us. I have doubts and questions and concerns. I wonder where is he taking us sometimes. But I know where, who I'm with. I'm trusting him. That's what it means to trust. Not to have any questions. You know, it's like questions are fine. Like all the disciples ever have is questions or confusion. They never know what's going on. That's what it means to trust Jesus. As long as you stay with him, particularly when it becomes a much more difficult to stay with him. And so John is highlighting this moment in part to help the people who have stayed with him realize they should keep staying with him because Jesus said this is how difficult it would be. It was even predicted by Isaiah that it would be so difficult to believe and to trust when the things aren't going exactly like you like. But if you stay with him, Jesus says, I will take you to a mountain that is so great, that is so wonderful. It's always a powder day (laughs) for the skiing fans. You don't have to buy one of these epic passes and go to all the mountains. I got one mountain that's always perfect. It's got more runs than you could ever want. It's the mountain of God. It's an amazing mountain. And and you can live there together and ski with Jesus all the time. (laughs) Imagine that. Okay, so I'm old school. I keep keep these keys tight. Okay. So like, this is the mountain I want to take you to. Do you remember this? Do you remember when we studied the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the woman that had to go in the middle, the heat of the day, because she had had so many husbands that nobody would talk to her. So she went to the well in the middle of the day, and the disciples find Jesus talking to her and becoming friends with her and telling her that she is forgiven and that she can worship God again. And she says, on what mountain do we worship? Because the Samaritans worshipped on one mountain and the, and the Jews worshipped on another mountain. He said, no, 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 no. There's a new mountain and it's the mountain of spirit and truth. And anyone, anywhere, no matter what you've done, can worship on this mountain. The mountain will make you pure as the snow because I'm giving my life as the Messiah to make you clean again. And she said, what? Tell me how to get there. And Jesus said, follow me. I'll take you there. You remember that story? I will take you to the mountain, the true mountain of worship, the mountain that God has been preparing from before eternity for those who trust and love him. And how do you trust and love him? By following the son who came and proved that he's worthy to be followed. It's a narrow path to this mountain, but it is the mountain of God. So here's my mountain. Okay, so... There's the snow. Let's let's for the artists. I gotta get. I gotta get. I gotta get something here. Okay. So here's the mountain of God. This is the mountain of God. Jesus is taking all of his family to this mountain on a great family trip for all eternity. Now you say, well, then why why doesn't anybody why doesn't everybody go that way? You can't see the mountain. 
You can't see the mountain. What do you mean? Why doesn't he just show us the mountain? It's a ways away. It's a ways away. For 2,000 years, his people have been walking this path. By faith in what they can't see yet, but that Jesus promised. You say, like, that's what's hard, Dave, about being a Christian. If he would just take us there right away, well, then we'd know. Yeah, I wish that too. But that's not the plan of God. The plan is to walk by faith. Okay, so it's like, does he give us anything to help us know that this mountain is so great? Could he give us like a brochure or something? The answer is yes! Yes! This is the biggest brochure you've ever seen. There's so many pages to the brochure. Have you read it? It's a wonderful brochure. There's not a lot of pictures, but there's word pictures. So you have to learn how to read and stuff. Well, you don't even need to learn how to read. I mean, somebody will read it to you. The internet is wonderful. Bibleproject.com. You don't have to read. There's just like cartoons and stuff. And it tells you everything that's in here. Bible Project. Okay, so Jesus is the brochure. That's actually a better way to say it. This whole book is about Jesus, but Jesus is the brochure. So do you not want to know what life on the mountain is like? John tells us this is what life on the mountain is like because the mountain came and dwelt among us. The mountain lived with us for a bit and this is what the mountain did. This is is how the mountain heals. This is how the mountain forgives. This is how the mountain loves. Like Jesus is the brochure. That's why we consider Jesus. Like Jesus is the brochure. I want to say that. Jesus is the brochure. Have you read Jesus? That's how you know what the mountain is like. But you can't go there and then come back. You ha- he says, you have to follow me. You have to go with me. And, and John says, many, they couldn't do it. They just couldn't believe. There's too much to lose. There's too much to lose. And even those that deep down in their heart really believe, they're like, I don't want to get kicked out of, I don't want to lose my ski pass now. Like, I like the synagogue. I like my friends and my family. I, I like all that. I, don't wanna, I can't give it up. So they might believe in their heart, but they can't confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. You see, that's what's going on. And John's saying, even Isaiah predicted that this would happen. And why is that? Because guess what's down here at the end of the other road? Lots of awesome mountains. So look at this. There's another mountain. And another mountain. And there's another mountain. And there's, look at all the mountains. And so, we see all the other mountains, all the other options, right? Look at them. Now, you don't necessarily always know when you go down this path, but these mountains are closer, so you might get there in your life. And you might know some people who've been there and come back and told you these mountains are awesome. And so, they're also bringing back brochures. And you might actually get to go on a weekend trip and visit it. And so when Jesus says, no, no, follow me to this mountain, but you won't get there until you die, <laughs> you're like, but I got some friends that just came back from Whistler. And they, they had a lot of fun. I've been to Whistler. That is a lot of fun. So what are these mountains? In John's day, and even in today, there's a mountain of Moses. The Mosaic Law that tells us exactly how to live and how to feel good and that he gives us the scorecard. And it feels good to have the scorecard and to win. 
So there's a mountain of Moses down here. There's a mountain of other works-based religions. So it's like, man, I like those other religions that don't require so much faith, but I can just know exactly what I need to do and when to do it. And if I do it, I feel good about myself and I feel like I've earned something in the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, no, no, I've got a better mountain for you. It's a mountain of grace. But, it's like, but, th- but then I can't win. It's like, yep, but you get to hang out with the winner. But I like winning. It feels good to win. It feels good to be the righteous one. Yep, you're not righteous. You have to admit that you're a sinner and follow Jesus because he's the righteous one. <sighs> but, but these mountains. Maybe in our day it's less, in our city at least, it's maybe less about other religious mountains, but maybe it's mountains of material comfort and pleasure. No, I like that. I'll chase that. I know that has immediate rewards. It's fun. I'll take that now. It might be the mountain of the American dream. If I chase the American dream, if I work hard enough, if I do all the things I'm supposed to do, I could end up with a beautiful life here in America. Jesus says that American dream has nothing to do with my mountain. My mountain's different. Maybe it's the mountain of romantic love. I mean, have you ever been loved? It feels so good. It's, it's such a powerful experience that I do not, I, 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 I just can't be mad at anybody who chooses that. I get it. Romantic love is such an amazing vacation. But that's all it is. It's always temporary. The kind of love at the mountain of God is a different kind of love than eros love, than romantic love or sexual love. The mountain of God is covenant agape love that no matter what or how you perform, God loves you in a way that you feel known and seen and valuable. Yeah, romantic love, it's a temporary awesome vacation, but it's temporary. Jesus is inviting you to an eternal vacation with him. So I get that this is hard. And, and, and John even is saying it's understandable why these people even believed in their heart but just couldn't, they just couldn't go, keep going forward because it was, they just give up too much. There's mountains in both places. Jesus says, I want you to take a trip with me to the mountain of God. So that's the end of my drawing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it a little bit more. So remember the Isaiah quotes then. Remember the Isaiah quotes. Turn with there, there with me again. So the first one says, Lord, who has believed your message that there's a good mountain, that it's the mountain that God's saving you? Who has, who has heard about the, the, the salvation, the arm of the Lord, that it's been revealed and gone? Seeing like it's, People are always taking the wide path that leads to these temporary mountains. And then Isaiah says a strange thing. He says, Actually, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, and that they'd turn. Because if they turned to him, they'd be healed. And, and, and so you read that, and you're like, that's strange. Like, what is John, like, is that how God is? Does he harden people's heart? Does he not want some people to find the mountain? The answer is God, and John makes this clear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish in the temporaries, but can have everlasting life with God, whoever wants it. But there's another truth that's, 
that's clear throughout Scripture is that when people repeatedly get this offer and this clear revelation, they will, they will give up the eternal for the temporary, and as they're doing so, God will allow their hearts to be hardened and in, some, in, in certain circumstances confirm the hardness with his collaboration and harden their hearts. And, and, the, and the, the most famous story of this is Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. God wants to take his people and create a new nation. And Pharaoh's hard heart says no. Ten times he says no. Ten signs, ten plagues. Do you remember the story? And Pharaoh says no every time, and his heart gets harder and harder and harder each time. Now what is God doing? He's giving signs that Moses is from God. He's, he's showing very clearly life Opposed to God leads to really bad things. He's making it clear, but life with God is the opposite of that. Ten times, and yet Pharaoh still, the stubbornness of Pharaoh will not, will not turn from his way. And it leads to destruction for Pharaoh and Egypt. Does this remind you, and, and the scriptures say, and God hardened his heart. So God didn't force Pharaoh to reject him, but when Pharaoh rejects him, his God allows his heart to continue to be hardened. Does that remind you of anything? Well, there's ten signs in Exodus. Jesus has given seven. And yet, the people's hearts remain hard. So John is saying, hey, just like Pharaoh, the people here saw signs. They saw wonders. They saw the power of God to confirm the statements that were being made by Jesus the messenger of God, and yet they turned to the temporary as opposed to the offer and invitation of the eternal. And so their hearts were hardened. Even God participated in allowing their hearts to be hardened. Okay. This is just the way it is. So you say like, okay, so what does that have to do with me today? What does that have to do with me today? Well, the first thing I would say is that for people you know, like if you've already decided to go with Jesus, keep going. Keep staying close to him. This isn't, you haven't made it through the only hard time. At times you could, you know, decide, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to jump ship. Stick with him, even in the hard times. Remember that he showed himself. But more than that, what I want to say, if you know people that are kind of in this place, have sympathy for them. In fact, have empathy. You were here too. You have been here, are here, will be here. You know how, how alluring the temporary... These mountains are a lot closer. Like, it's like a real thing that people have been struggling with. And, and this is what John's saying. Even the people who watched the miracles firsthand struggled with it. So John's readers didn't see these things firsthand. They just heard about them. And he's saying, no, even the people that saw it firsthand, they chose the temporary. So, so have patience and grace and mercy for the people that are struggling with this decision of whether or not to follow Jesus. It's not easy. Stick with them. Pursue them. Continue to be available to them. We have a principle at Sedaris, aggressive availability. Don't, don't force them to, to, to follow, but always be there to help them 
should they feel in their heart that they want to go? So this is a, a very hard decision, John's telling us. Even if you were there watching Jesus do the miracles, you would struggle with this decision. And so we just keep telling people about Jesus, giving them the brochure, making it clear, not giving false promises, not saying life with Jesus is super easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It's narrow. It's a long journey. There's many valleys, but you're with Jesus the whole time, and being with him is the best thing, even on the way. Okay, so then the other thing I'd like to say is, is this. Um, Because it seems a very common pattern that there are moments or seasons of softness in people's hearts. In your heart, you'll have seasons of softness and, I think, seasons of hardness and stubbornness. And John's pointing that out again. He's saying, listen, this is just the way it is. What I want to say to you is is that God does participate in the hardening. But he, won't, but he also participates in the softening of hearts. No one ever came to God just because of their own wisdom or their own um, you know, adventuring spirit. They came because the Spirit softened their heart and delivered to them the truth of the message of Jesus. So God hardens and he softens. And so this is what I really want you to hear. Particularly in the new year, some of you might be here because your heart has been softened by God and you're, you're giving it another shot or you're checking it out again or for the first time. Or you might have some people or friends that you want to invite to Alpha and their heart might be soft right now. Just know, John's telling us, that softness doesn't all, just last forever. So what we want to pay attention to, if, if you're the one who you find a new softness in your heart, Use that time now. Don't wait. Use that time now to investigate and study and consider Jesus in a way that you never have before while your heart is soft. Don't put it off. Don't keep visiting the temporary mountains and spending all your time there. Don't be lazy about it. Like at Sedaris, we say, we would never put pressure on anyone to make a decision or choose. But we do want to say, the time is now to consider deeply the brochure of Jesus, if your heart is soft to it, if you feel yourself open to it again, like the time is now. Don't wait to start considering Jesus. Don't wait to do what you need to do to find clarity in your heart and your mind that he is or isn't who he said he was. Because seasons of softness can come and go. Take advantage of this right now. Say 2024 is a year of consideration, a year of determination to come to conclusions and clarity about Jesus like you've never had before. Like, don't wait to start considering. That's what I want to say to you today. There is a moment. You've been brought into this place. If you're here this morning, it's because your probably heart is soft. Don't wait to try living life with Jesus. Do it now. Don't wait to start considering. Let's pray.